Good morning. Let's go over a couple of announcements. Uh, one through four, we're pretty well acquainted with. Uh, again, we will be resuming our service tonight. Is that correct, brother? Okay, just making sure. And Sunday school is coming back in September. And we are looking still to see you folks up on the sign-up list uh, for the various classes. Uh, anything going on in particular this week? Uh, my cousin had her surgery. She came out of it quite well, thanks to your prayers. And uh, I had a brief uh, text conversation with her. She said uh, everything went well with the operation, and she slept like a stone for about seven hours and uh, said she could have slept forever. But uh, she's home, and uh, everything's going well for her. So. Any other uh, comments or praises or questions that uh, we can address? Brother? Kevin Hopp, the Burns guy, is coming Wednesday. I think he's going to start with the Burns. Excellent. Okay. And that's the one for the main auditorium. Okay. Very good. That's. Uh, Keep that in the back of our minds and our prayers, too, that all goes well with that and that the price can be held as what was quoted. If there's nothing else, then our scripture for meditation is taken from the book of Exodus, chapter 13. And it'll be verses 1 through 16, page 107 in your pew Bibles. 11 through 16, I stand corrected. Thank you.
Would you stand with us as we begin our service with opening prayer? Brandon, may I prevail upon you to lead us in prayer? Yes. Dear Father, Lord, we just uh, we come before you today. We just uh, we thank you for all the good things that you've done for us, even the things that we take for granted, the things that we overlook. We thank you for the blessings you've given our family, our friends, and our loved ones. We thank you for the things you do for us every moment of every day. Lord, we just pray for forgiveness, for lack of patience, for anger, for impatience with you, for lack of faith, for all the things that we do on a daily basis against you. We just pray for forgiveness of those things. We pray for mercy. We pray, pray for your continued grace that you supply to us endlessly. Lord, we pray that we not take this for granted. We pray that today that the message that's brought forth is embedded into our hearts. We pray that you, your word changes, Lord. We pray that we just not move on to our normal day-to-day -day and, and forget um, forget your words, forget the things that you teach us. Lord, we just pray you be our teacher today and every day going forward. In Jesus' name we pray, Lord. Amen. 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 your red hymnal this morning and turn to 599 599 in the red
Happy birthday. Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 1 through 14, and that's page 1526 in our Pew Bible. When you come to that, please stand with us.
Matthew 18, verses 1 through 14. <clears throat> At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called the little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth. Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come. But woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we pray that you would add your blessing to this and press it upon our hearts. Let us seek your face and your word this hour. In the name of Christ. you take your red hymnal again and turn to number 617, 617 in the red. Thank you. 
Our scripture text today is Matthew 18. Last Lord's Day, we studied the parables of the found treasure and, secondly, the parable of the pearl of great value. Both of these parables taught us that the kingdom of heaven is something which is priceless in worth. Both emphasize the truth that if, if you had to sell everything you owned in order to obtain this kingdom, you would still be a winner in the end. The parable of the treasure taught us that sometimes in the providence of God, people who are not seekers stumble across the treasure of God's kingdom when they aren't even looking for it. That's God's grace. We use the illustration of the thief on the cross. He just, uh, I put it this way, happened to be crucified alongside of the Son of God who spoke to him these precious words today you will be with me in paradise what a way to die let me tell you i think this gives us hope for the hard-hearted cynical world we love among our families and friends we can't understand why they love the world like that they couldn't care less about christ they couldn't care less about his forgiveness. They live for today and that's it. 
But that's not it. Because God may seek them and disturb them and draw them. Oh, more hope is the parable of the pearl of great value. Because it teaches us that those who seek will find. No promise is given to the non-seeker. But God's word extends to the seeker this promise. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. People seek tenaciously after lesser things. Money, power, position, honor, respect. All of which are destined to perish when you think about it. But even if you were to gain the whole world... What good would it be if it cost you your soul in the bargain? And that is why Jesus said to his disciples, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and the other things that you think you need and must have, those will be added to you. God isn't going to leave you destitute. But he does want you to place him first, which is his rightful place. Now today we come to a passage which at first glance does not sound like a parable at all. It begins with something which sounds too historical, too doctrinal to be a story. The disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And what follows is a treatise on the place little children have in the kingdom of heaven, and how we adults must become childlike in faith if we too would have the hope of eternal life. No one would deny that the subject matter of this text is the kingdom of heaven. But what a strange question the disciples posed. Who was the greatest in the kingdom was the question asked by the disciples. And Jesus' answer talks about entering the kingdom. Look at verse 13. But this is not a hypothetical story. This reads like a historical event. This actually happened. That is, the disciples really did come to Jesus with this question. And when Jesus answered them, there doesn't appear to be any parable format. Instead, he took a real child who was standing in the crowd, placed him in the middle of the group of the disciples, and used that child to make some very important doctrinal assertions about the kingdom of heaven and how people enter it. The parable, brethren, is attached 
to the doctrinal teaching to illustrate the historical event. Verse 12 and following, If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hill and go to look for that one that wandered off? Verse 14 explains that Jesus told this story to teach that God is committed to the salvation of the children who believe in him. Luke's gospel records it this way. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them, etc., etc., etc. So Luke includes this account in an entire chapter devoted to the parables of lost things. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. But I'm following Matthew's format in our study, at least initially. And in Matthew's account, more detail is given us as to the historical setting for the parable of the lost sheep, though he doesn't use the word parable. Luke, however, does. From Matthew's account, it appears that this parable of the lost sheep had direct reference to the children who believed in Christ. And thus it became an illustration of the doctrinal section which grew out of the disciples' question. Okay. So what was the disciples' question? Here it is. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? If we follow the sequence of events leading up to this question, it is most revealing. Jesus had taught them of the value of the kingdom, that it was a treasure found in a field. It was a pearl of priceless quality. So they certainly understood that the kingdom of heaven was a prize worth obtaining. But once being incorporated... Within the kingdom, they wanted to know who was considered to be the greatest. Now note, I don't think it's correct to assume that they were questioning the position of Jesus within the kingdom as master and Lord. Certainly not. They knew full well that Christ was Lord and they were but his servants. So their question was really this. Lord, who among us? Who among mankind is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That's their question. Boy, does it tell a lot. Mark tells us of the account when Jesus was traveling to Capernaum and Jesus asked the disciples, uh, what were you arguing about on the road back there, you know? But they kept quiet, zip, because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. Mark 9, verse 33, verse 34. Even after Jesus' teaching here in our text concerning childlike humility that's needed to enter 
James and John put their mother up to asking Jesus, uh, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left when you come into your kingdom. Matthew 20, verse 21. Does all of this surprise you? Does it burst your bubble of high ideals to see the very disciples of Christ whose writings you have come to trust as the word of God act in such a selfish and carnal way all they can think about in terms of the kingdom of heaven is what part am I going to get? Let me remind you that we have before us from their own pen, Matthew, Mark, a description of their pettiness and their sin of wanting to be preeminent over one another. Because what they wrote was the word of God, they could not lie about their own wickedness. You know, I can trust the account of men like this, can't you? This is one of the glorious proofs of the inspiration of the Bible. Peter puts it this way. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. 2 Peter 1, verse 21. And since they were speaking for God, they had to tell the truth, even if the truth hurt, even if the truth tarnished their own reputations. The world doesn't understand that. We should. Note there is a distinction, however, between what we read in the pages of the Bible and the tell-all books being written today by the celebrities. Modern-day authors tell us all that's in their life, even the lurid details, in order to be provocative and in order to make money off their notoriety. There's no sense of repentance in their writings. They just want to be lurid, profitable in what they write. The disciples, however, tell all in humility and in compliance to the Spirit of God who wants those who read the Bible to know that even the most godly of people sin. And they need the grace and forgiveness of God. Wow. So what about this question that the disciples ask? Does it not reveal the true inner thinking? They've been listening to Jesus' parables about the kingdom of heaven, how many are called but few are chosen, how only the good soil produces a crop 
pleasing to God, how the wheat only will be gathered into God's barn on the day of judgment. They have learned that to possess the kingdom of heaven is to possess a priceless treasure of great value. All of this is quite accurate. But somewhere along the way, they picked up some things that Jesus never taught nor implied. They began to think of themselves as citizens of the kingdom, as being people of special worth to God. Oh. They were a notch or two above the ordinary man. They were somebodies in a sea of everybody. And having arrived at that erroneous conclusion, it was only a short leap to conclude that even among themselves, there must be some uh, who were greater than the rest of the disciples. We might even unwittingly confirm their opinion in that we ourselves, when thinking of the disciples of Christ, tend to give more credence more conversation to men like Peter, James, John, Matthew, right? While giving little or no thought to Bartholomew, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Thaddeus. Why is that? Well, perhaps it's due to the fact that we know more about those disciples whose writings we have in the Bible. But the fact remains that all of the twelve were sent out by Christ as preachers and as miracle workers. Matthew chapter 10, you can read about it. And all of them had successful ministries historically, even dying as martyrs for Christ because they refused to disown him under the severest persecution. Judas, of course, being accepted from the group because of his betrayal. So the problem of pride is a real danger for even the closest of Jesus' disciples. And we're not exempt. I am not exempt. I find myself at times longing for a bigger ministry or more extensive impact in the preaching. I have the wicked desire at times to want to be known as a great expounder of the word of God. Problems of smallness and isolation and obscurity haunt me at times, like a wolf baying in the wilderness to feed his insatiable appetite. And if this were not a problem in its own right, without any prompting from others, there is in our day, in our day, the teaching coming out of the Christian psychological circles. That we Christians are of, here it is, we are of great worth to God. Have you heard that? This, like the erroneous conclusion of the disciples on their greatness, is not taught in the Bible. But it is an inference assumed from all of those passages in the Bible which speak of God 
loving his people, sending his son Jesus to die for his people's sin, blessing them with both spiritual and material gifts. People read that in the scripture and they say, wow, we're worth something to God. There's a lot of talk about people having a poor self-image. It's being said that things like depression, things like lack of energy, the unwillingness to try new things, the lack of confidence, all have to do with people's low view of themselves. So the solution? Well, let's show them how much their worth to God. And the scriptures are twisted to conform to this psychological solution for low self-esteem. Robert Schuller, his book, Self-Esteem, A New Revolution. Self-esteem is the single greatest need, he writes, facing the human race today. End quote. He goes on. Once a person believes he is an unworthy sinner, it's doubtful if he can honestly accept the saving grace God offers in Christ. He goes on to speak of the sacred right of every person to self-esteem. If you want to know why Schuller smiles on television so much, it's a strategy. People who don't trust need to be stroked. People are born with a negative self-image. And because they do not trust, they cannot trust God. So he's about to change all that. Now this supposedly poor self-image is being blamed for many of the ills in our society as this statement from Dobson bears out. Here's another psychologist. Writes Dobson, Whenever the keys of self-esteem are seemingly out of reach, as in the 20th century of America, then widespread mental illness, neuroticism, hatred, alcoholism, drug abuse, violence, social disorder will certainly occur. Personal worth is not something human beings are free to take or leave. We must have it. And when it is unattainable, unattainable, everybody suffers. That stops them. But these things, hatred, alcoholism, drug abuse, violence, these are all called sin in the Bible. They are never attributed to man's poor self-image 
but rather to his pride, to his greed, to his selfishness, to his conceit, which causes him to think of himself as having a right to hurt others in order to get what he wants. Well, how far is this new self-esteem philosophy going? Coming into our worship and preaching, it is. One seminary professor commented in the hymnal presently used in our church, the last line of beneath the cross of Jesus has been changed from my own unworthlessness to my unworthiness. I quite agree that we are unworthy. I do not believe that it accords with the biblical teaching to say that we are worthless. Isaiah 64, 6 says, All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Hmm. What does the Bible say about worthless? Or doesn't it say anything? Let me read some of it for you. 2 Kings 17, verse 14 and following, of Israel in their rebellion to God. The author writes, they would not listen. They rejected God's decrees and his covenant. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. 2 Kings 17, verse 14 and following. Again, Isaiah says of the people of the earth, before God all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. Isaiah 40, verse 17. Hosea writes, asking the question, is Gilead wicked? Gilead stands for Israel. Answer, its people are worthless. Zechariah speaks of worthless shepherds, that would be preachers, who abused the people and refused to care for them. Zechariah 11, verse 17. Worthless preachers. In the parable of the talents, Jesus said of the lazy servants who refused to use their gift for God, throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 25, verse 3. And Paul describes both Jew and Gentile alike as all worthless. All have turned away. They have all together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. 
Romans 2, verse 12. So clearly, I mean, clearly, the Bible describes sinful humanity again and again as being worthless in the sight of God and not simply unworthy. I would caution you, get your theology from the scriptures, not the hymns, or from those hymns which are altered by men to fit their own prejudices. The same professor that talked about you shouldn't have preaching on worthlessness in the, in the, or in the church criticizes Isaac Watts him get this Isaac Watts when he writes alas and did my savior bleed and he criticizes it because it speaks of Christ dying for such a worm as I he goes on to say this him could convey to many people a quite unflattering self-image. Yeah. Got your brown hymnal in front of you there a minute. Turn to number 208. Two zero eight. Alas, and did my Savior bleed. First hand, alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for sinners such as I? What's wrong with that? If you were to look in an old hymnal, it doesn't read that way. For a sinner such as I reads for such a worm as I. Oh, looks like the worm crawled out of our hymnal. Turn to page 284 in the hymn. They all know we are Christians by our love. This hymn on Christian unity talks about us all being one in the spirit, walking hand in hand, working side by side, wonderful words, wonderful truths. And then the third verse, and will guard each one's dignity and save each one's pride which I think is to put too high a cost on unity when it comes to false teaching and questionable methods don't want to offend anybody's pride and this emphasis on personal self-worth has even 
gone so far as to reinterpret the task of preaching and the meaning of the cross. Ooh. Dr. Wayne Caldwell of the Rosemead School of Psychology writes, Depression always has a loss of self-esteem in the foreground. Be slow to direct a depressed person to the scriptures. No, I mean, I'm, I'm still quoting him. He says, no preaching. I would recommend a recess from church if there is preaching done in that church. This is a professor. Contrast this to the words of Horatio Bonar, hymn writer, theologian of the past. He writes, in all unbelief, there are two things, a good opinion of self and a bad opinion of God. So long as these things exist, it is impossible for the inquirer to find rest. His good opinion of himself makes him think it's quite possible to win God's favor by his own religious performances. It takes a great deal to destroy a man's good opinion of himself. And even after he has lost his good opinion of his works, he retains a good opinion of his heart. And even after he has lost that, he holds fast a good opinion of his religious duties. The object of the Holy Spirit's work is convicting of sin. In convicting of sin is to alter the sinner's opinion of himself and so to reduce his estimate of his own character that he shall think of himself as God thinks of him. Brethren, this new emphasis on Self-esteem has even reinterpreted the meaning of the cross, and it's sickening. One writer says, it is, it is as if Christ had said, you are of such worth to me that I'm going to die. Even experience hell so that you might be adopted as my brother or my sister. Another writes, the greatest demonstration of a person's worth to God was shown in giving his son. Wrong, wrong. The cross is a demonstration, brethren, not of man's great worth, but of God's great mercy, love, and grace. The emphasis has been shifted from God to man, which is the philosophy of humanism redressed in Christian garb. 
Let me ask, how does any of this differ from the position of the world? How is any of this different from the disciples of our text whose conversations with one another were centered around who among them was the greatest in Christ's kingdom? As though the kingdom of heaven was concerned with such an inquiry. Boy, somebody's really missed the mark. Listen now to the disciples' question and Jesus' answer. Let me read this section again for you. It's verses 2 and following. He called a little child, and he had him stand among them, and he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never Enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoa. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned into the depths of the sea. Young children are many things. Trusting unassuming, unpretentious, frank, compliant, inexperienced, limited in knowledge, many things good, some things bad. Jesus could have chosen any number of good traits in the children to answer his disciples, but the one trait he mentions spoke directly to their problem, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven verse 4 the problem of the disciples was not lack of knowledge it was not lack of faith it was not lack of honesty it was lack of humility they all had a hefty dose of self-esteem and it is that egotistical estimate of their own worth that caused contentions among them, not the lack of good personal self-image. Pride was the sin that brought Lucifer low when he said in his heart, I am a God. I sit on the throne of God. Ezekiel 28 verse 2. And pride was Eve's great downfall as she listened to Satan's temptation and believed the lie. Well, you will be <laughs> like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw 
that the fruit of the tree was good for gaining wisdom? She took some and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Genesis 3, verse 6. Pride was the original sin. It's the ongoing sin. Now, what do we learn here? Well, number one, without humility, no one will even enter the kingdom of heaven, let alone be great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 3. Jesus did not say this to the crowd of unbelievers standing by, no, from which he had summoned that child for the story. He said this to his own disciples. And in effect, he was saying, you men are all consumed with the question of greatness and which of you will have the greatest honor in my kingdom. You assume that you are already in the kingdom and that all that is needed now is for you to know who's going to be the head honcho. But what you really need to consider is whether you are even in the kingdom in the first place. Talk about a jolt to their pride. If this were you standing before Jesus that day, would not all of our security and self-confidence just kind of fly out the window? Undoubtedly, yes. Was Jesus stroking their eagle here as Schuler does? No. Surely not. What you and I must realize today is that we are standing before the Jesus of this account. His words are as surely aimed at us as it was at his professing disciples on that day. It is a biblical truth that without holiness, no one will see the Lord, Hebrews 12, verse 14. And it's also a biblical axiom that without humility, no one will see the Lord either. How so? Well, we have to change and become like little children. Jesus says so. The Greek word here is to be converted. You have to be converted. You have to change. We are therefore instructed by the Lord to take a lesson from the children, to look through the eyes of Christ, and to be so enraptured with Him and His love and His grace that there is no time for musing on how wonderful a catch we are to God. Secondly, we are to learn that there are great people in the kingdom of God and that those great people are the ones who humble themselves like a child. Verse 4. Verse 4. We probably all laughed at the title of that book that came out years ago, Humility and How I Obtained It. That was the name of the book. Because we do not normally (laughs) conceive of humility as something which we can go to work on. But Jesus here speaks of one who humbles himself. But surely Jesus is not talking 
about the false kind of humility so common among people who try to look humble through their dress, through their mannerisms. They sound humble by their speech. They speak in less than favorable terms about their gifts and their desires and their abilities kind of put themselves down. This is the kind of hypocrisy is worse than pride. And it received the greatest condemnation by Christ in the Pharisees of his day. Oh, the humble Pharisees. They came off looking very godly to the people, but who were exposed as frauds by Jesus who could read their thoughts. There they are, standing on the corner with their phylacteries. A phylactery is a little box with scripture in it on little scrolls, and they would put that on their forehead. And they say, see, our mind is soaked in the word of God. All that we do in terms of our behavior is the word of God. It was all show is what it was. The thought life is important. That's where we must begin to go to work on humility. The basis for Schuller's philosophy of positive thinking is this, if he can convince someone that they are somebody, then they will be somebody. Oh. Yes. And they will be so full of stinking pride that no one will be able to stand them. Jesus has a different thought pattern which he wants to instill in his people. Chapter 18 of our text, verses 8 and 9. What does it read? It says, If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into the internal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes to be thrown into the fire of hell. Well, that is different. If our own personal being, our hands, that would be our skills, our feet, that would be our mobility to go about and do, our eyes through which we see, through which we discern, if these things lead us into sin and tempt others by our poor example to sin along with us, radical surgery is needed to cut away the offending part. And the cutoff process is not literal, but spiritual. It speaks of repentance, wherein we renounce our pride and our selfishness. It's kind of a repentance which causes us to turn away from anything, which is a temptation to us or to others, our children, who may be watching us for moral guidance. And where does repentance begin? Well, it begins in the thought life. 
So long as you're pleased with yourself, full of your own self-importance, humility of heart will elude you. You will be able to do no wrong. You will be careless about your life, your hands, your feet, your eyes, where they go, what they see, what they do, and you will not concern yourself with your testimony to the onlooker. Okay, how do we change our thought life? How do we begin to think of ourselves in humble terms instead of the grandiose view we often have of ourselves? Firstly, by realizing the consequences of your conduct on your children. Verse 6. You say you love your children. You say you want them to know Christ as Savior. Then how can you walk through life oblivious to your own sin? Indifferent to your lifestyle. Apathetic towards your egotistical ways. Careless about your commitment to Christ and his church. Knowing that the greatest goal of any young boy is to be like his dad. And the goal of any little girl is to grow up like her mom. Will you be responsible for causing your own children to sin? For planting a stumbling block in their path? You need to think about that. And secondly, we need to realize the dire consequence of conduct upon our own destiny. If you cause your kids to sin, it would be better for you to be weighed down with a millstone and drown in the depths of the sea, says Jesus. Why would that be better? Well, because the real judgment will be worse to be thrown into the eternal fire. Verse 8. The fire of hell, verse 9. These are hard truths, aren't they? But this is the gospel Jesus preached. So we need to think about it. We need to be renewed in our minds through repentance. May God so grant this to us. Lord, thank you for your word and thank you for Jesus' truth to tell us to our hearts and our minds to tell us the truth like it is. Not to whitewash it. Not to substitute the truth by saying, well, you're worth a lot to God. You're wonderful. No, we need to know exactly where we stand before God. And why that cross was necessary. Why the sacrifice of your son, O Lord, required his death, burial, and resurrection. He was paying for our sins. All were not so good then. It required the death sentence to make the payment. This is not good. I guess we're not too wonderful. No, Lord, we're very needy. But praise to your grace, 
you rose to our occasion and you granted us what we needed, forgiveness and reconciliation through the blood of Jesus. What a wonderful Savior. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Our closing hymn is 462 in the brown hymnal. Oh, you're going to change? Okay. We sang that earlier in the red hymnal. Five hundred and eight in the red. And when you find five oh eight in the red, will you stand with me?
reminds me of Paul's words to the Romans. Where sin abounded, grace did much more what? Abound. The grace of God is superior to what Satan tries to do with us in our sin. He would destroy us. Jesus said of Satan, he was a murderer from the beginning. We should never forget that. There's no good in him at all. He's a liar, a deceiver, a murderer. And Christ came to thwart him, to defeat him. He's already doomed. If you read your scriptures, it's a done deal in the mind of God. History just waits for its consummation. The grace and mercy has come and triumphed in the cross of Christ and in the open tomb. Praise the Lord. We serve a living Savior. Our Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word, the gospel, the good news, the good news that Jesus preached is what we need to hear, not the, the uh, modern-day feel-good, uh, smile uh, presentation of some kind of false teaching as though the gospel has changed. No, it hasn't. We're still sinners, and Satan still tries to distort the word of God and get us to believe something that isn't true. Give us hearts to believe and to accept the truth of your word. And when the sword of the Spirit convicts us, help us to respond to that correctly. That's part of the humility that we need in terms of all of these things. We're to be humble like a little child. We're not to be defensive, but we are to say, yeah, that's me. And I need God's grace. And brethren, we need it every day. So I pray that the Lord will grant to us his grace, daily grace, to live for him. And we'll praise you, Lord, for what you're going to do in our lives. Help our families, help our children to come to know this gracious God. In Christ's name, amen. Okay. I didn't know that. I suppose it's in the bullet.